Straight from the hard coal region of Northeastern Pennsylvania. The podcast by coaches for coaches. Welcome to Bandbox Baseball with your hosts, Corey Nido and Paul McGloin. Now let's hit the field running. Welcome in. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing well. How are your holidays? Doing well. How are yours? Good, good. Busy. Uh, good to see the family and everything, and uh, looking forward to getting uh, everything going again here. We didn't talk about you got engaged, right? No, we didn't. Uh, yeah, uh, right before Christmas, uh, I ended up getting engaged. It was really cool. Uh, probably one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done in my life, and uh, <laughs> people thought it was funny because they're like, oh, you speak for a living on camera and on the radio, I said <laughs> I I take that you know nine out of ten times because that that asking that question and planning it all out that was certainly a nerve wracking. <laughs> she said yes. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Uh, that part's out of the way. Uh, when I mentioned our last podcast, we had Jamie Shevchik, Keystone College. Really enjoyed listening to what he had to say. And one of the things I was reflecting upon, the, we had mentioned the fact that Janie had taken a, a certain path, playing at Keystone, becoming an assistant at Keystone, and then becoming the head coach. One of the things I've, I've told younger coaches, and my advice in first getting into coaching is simply this. If you can get under somebody who's good, somebody who is either well-respected in the baseball community or someone that you respect, that's a great route to take to get in and learn or something like that. But if you don't have that opportunity, I just say just throw yourself under the fire. Just take a job as a high school coach, take a job as a junior varsity coach, a junior high coach, legion coach, travel coach, whatever, and just submerge yourself in as many learning environments as you possibly can to try and become the best coach you can be. And I wouldn't even set out to be the best pitching coach, the best hitting coach, the best catching coach, et cetera. Just set out to be the best coach you can be. And I've always felt that's great advice to give to somebody who's getting into coaching for the first time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you never know what can lead to your next opportunity. And I mean, we've been talking about this with a lot of different coaches at different levels. Obviously, Jamie with Keystone at the Division Three level. We talked to, you know, obviously people at the Division One level. But it doesn't matter where you get your start, as long as you get it, and then, you know, like you said, you learn from somebody who is knowledgeable and has a good work ethic. And you know, the sky could be the limit if you if you have the right attitude. Exactly. So this episode, our guest is none other than Steve Trimper, who is the head baseball coach at Stetson University in Florida. Very excited to have him. Cordy, uh, did you do any research on Steve at all? Yeah, I did. Uh, Hatter Nation is a big thing down in Deland, Florida. Somewhat familiar with the university. I worked in Daytona Beach, Florida my first year out of college. So uh, Stetson's been a solid baseball program, and it's been taken to a new level here with uh, Steve at the helm. And uh, he's done some Great things from writing a book to uh, raising money to improve facilities. So certainly uh, excited to talk to Steve tonight. That being said, I'd like to welcome Steve Trimper. Coach Trimper, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. And uh, forgive me if I, I miss anything, but I just kind of want to go through your history a little bit. 
You graduated from Eastern Connecticut State University in 92. From there, you went on to be the associate head coach at Wentworth College. From there, assistant coach at Vermont. Then you took the head job at Manhattan. And then from Manhattan, you went on to become the head coach at Maine. You were there like 10, 11 seasons. And then from Maine, you became the head coach at Stetson University. Do I have the chronology correct? Yeah, you're right on there. It's my 21st year as a head coach starting this year in Stetson. So I spent seven years as a head coach at Manhattan. 11 at um, Maine, and, and this is my fourth season going in here at, uh, at at Stetson. It's been so long, man. I think I want to say you and I met when you were at Manhattan, and I want to say it <laughs> might have been. And I'm thinking back, the earliest I can remember it might have been when you and I both threw batting practice at Fenway Park for the Cape Cod All-Star game. <laughs> that's right. That? That's, going, that's going way, way back. That's right. We used to go up there and throw BP and hit fungos for, for the All-Star and for the workouts. That's right. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, How time yeah. flies. Uh, you know, it's funny about that. I always say you get former players that come back and coach with you. And I have kids that were much, much better athletes and baseball players than I was, and they have a tough time throwing BP. And I try to tell them, man, there's an art to it. It's not like throwing <laughs> the ball from the left side of the infield. And people say to me, you know, how did you BP get so good? I think it's my whole career. I threw it right down the middle and it got hammered. <laughs> That's, there you go. That's yeah, right. So, so I remember, I remember coaching the Bourne Braves, and I had a scout at the time named Buzz Bowers come over to me at one of the games in the Cape and said, "Hey, coach, you threw a pretty good BP." I didn't know him. I thought he was somebody's grandfather. I said, "Thanks, I appreciate it." And he, and he, long story short, he had asked me if I wanted to throw BP at Fenway for the Cape Cod All Star game, and I, I looked at him. I said, "You know, you become, you know, no matter what our travels are and who we coach, where we go." At heart, we're all still fans of the game. So I looked at him and I said, you asked me if I want to throw BP at Fenway Park. I said, yeah, I said, I'll, throw, I'll throw BP at Fenway Park naked if, if you let me. You know, so uh, I, uh, Good times. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you've had over 18 drafted players, tons of All-Americans, all-conference guys, conference championship, and a conference coach of the year. I'm sure the 20-plus years have gone by so fast. And I'm looking back at your history, first as a player, and I think right off the bat, you played for a legend in his own right for Bill Halawati at at Eastern Connecticut, right? Yes. Yeah, I did. I actually went uh, to Elon College my first year out of New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey, went to Kittatinny High School up in Sussex County, and was recruited by Rick Jones, who was wow. at Elon at the time and yeah. ended up loving it, playing with Rick Jones. And I'll, I'll tell you a crazy quick story about that as I get down there. And uh, one of my dorm mates um, is, was right down the hall, lived for me on that team as a freshman, was Jimmy Slosnagel, who's now the head coach <laughs> at TCU. Right. And, and I then, should mention, not to interrupt you, but I should mention Rick Jones enjoyed a, an illustrious career as the head baseball coach at Tulane University, uh, coached Team USA, and is now retired. But I, I've actually worked camp with Tulane, and Rick's a heck of a guy. He's great, and he, he yeah, was awesome. Yeah. And and the catcher on that team, who was one of my best friends, was uh, Mike Kennedy, who's now the head coach at Elon. So right. there were three Division One coaches in that dorm room, or dorm floor, I should say, in Sloan Hall back in 1988. But um, after one year there, Coach Jones actually left. He took the pitching coach job with Jim Morris down at Georgia Tech. Right. And a lot of us ended up transferring. Um, you know, we weren't playing for Coach Jones, so I transferred back up north and uh, kind of by a, a little luck kind of ended up at Eastern Connecticut and, and uh, met Coach Halawati and had a great career there. Won a national championship the next year uh, in 1990 with him and, and uh, was a great mentor, a great friend, and great teacher that I went through. And for those listening that might not know Coach Halawati, built a program, a Division three program, that 
is about as good as it could possibly be in America. He's in the ABCA Hall of Fame. Could you kind of talk about your experience playing for him and what you might have learned from him? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, it, was a, it was a great era of Eastern baseball. I mean, he had some great teams all the time. And um, we just happened to just really lock it up in 1991. Uh, there was nine draft picks on that team. I mean, we went 48-4, and four, I think it was, and stormed through the, the tournament. But Coach Holloway was a, was a, was a, a teacher coach, but he was a, a motivator. Um, he was a guy that, you know, you had to, you had to be able to wear it a little bit. He, he demanded a lot out of you. Um, he pushed you to your extreme, but he knew what your extreme was and your limits. And, uh, you know, he was, he was a remarkable, remarkable mentor for a lot of young ball players who, who, uh, who didn't really know what they were doing. And, you know, the, the baseball part, and I've always said this, and, and this is what prompted me in my career now, is the easy part is finding the kids that can hit it far and pitch, uh, you know, throw the ball well. It's, it's building that culture and that leadership skills of those kids that really make you guys, our team, come together, especially when the heat's on or especially when it's championship time and, and when competition's going. What Coach Holowati mastered is he taught me the ability to compete. No matter what we were doing, we competed when we played for him. And then he would teach his bowling class for phys ed, and we would compete in bowling class. And then we'd take us out to the putting green, and we would compete there. And he just was the ultimate competitor. And I think, you know, of all the things I could write down, which is a lot that he taught me, I think his competitive nature is what um, what rubbed off the most on me and, um, and helped me kind of grow my career and, and try to have the people I surround myself with, you know, try to make them become good competitors. I got to throw this one out yet. Not that I, the purpose of this podcast is not for me to talk a lot and for me to tell stories, but I got to throw this one in. You brought up a great point. If you had told me 20 years ago I'd be coaching travel ball in one of my own academy, I said, you're crazy. That never happened. But uh, <laughs> you, know, you, never, you never know where life's going to take you. And I'm not, you know, I don't have any, any regrets in that regard. But uh, a few years ago when I first started doing travel ball, you and I see each other at tournaments and every college coach recruits travel tournaments. And we decided that we were gonna, rather than have an off weekend, we were going to have an exhibition series against another local team, doubleheader Saturday, single game Sunday. And it gone well the weekend and we were playing on Sunday, played seven innings and it got to the bottom of the seventh and we had tied the other team. And both teams start walking to line up. And I, <laughs> I, said, I said, hang on a second. And I, and I grabbed the other coach and I said, listen, do you care if we finish this? He's like, no, man, it's a great day. And we paid the umpires to, play, to, you know, umpire the entire game. So I go over, I talk to the umpires, they're American Legion guys. We decided to finish the game. The game was over with, and I grabbed the kids, and we go out of the corner. I just said, I don't know if it's what travel ball is bred, and maybe you're not to blame, and I don't know where it came from. But when did it become okay to tie? <laughs> not, it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm bright, or I necessarily said anything profound. It was just, yeah. I couldn't believe the looks on their faces when I said that. It was almost like it had never said that to me before. And you mentioned this stuff about competing and you try to t teach these kids how to become a well-rounded baseball player. I said, listen, you know, I'm, I have two younger brothers and there's nothing I wouldn't do for them. But if I'm playing I'm in a game of pool, a game of darts, a video game, I want to beat the snot out of them. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, I think sometimes in the culture we have now with baseball, kids aren't taught to compete. They're just taught to show. And, you know, let, do I, did I show well? Did I look good in front of those coaches? And they forget the competitive aspect of the sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that happens so much now. And, and you know, it's one of the things that we kind of – you're right. We brought that upon ourselves. I mean, we sit there at Lake Point, you know, Georgia, watching, you know, 300 teams a week come in. And, you know, it's hard to find out, 
you know, when the game's over, <laughs> you know, because right. the scoreboard's yeah, exactly. not on, everybody just kind of walks away. And right. and I think that, you know, that's probably been the biggest thing I've noticed over the last 10 years is is that compete factor. And, you know, I think it gets away where we, um, you know, we try to have our kids specialize. You know, you're hearing mm-hmm. more and more guys are, are playing one sport, you know, at age 13 or 14 or, you know, that really good athlete that's quitting baseball to just concentrate on being a point guard or, you know, the shortstop that quits lacrosse or something else. Just, And I'm not really big into that. I want kids to play three sports. I my, my um I get really excited when I ask that question and say, what other sports do you play? And, and someone says, hey, coach, I can't come down for your prospect camp because I, I have our state, you know, playoff game in basketball. I'm like, that's awesome. That is so good. You know, learn to compete in all those different things, and that's what we want when we get into this level at college baseball. Yeah, and you're, you're talking about the same thing. We tell kids you want to teach them transferable life skills, and by learning other sports, not only do you develop other athletic abilities, but at the same time you develop other abilities to not just be around the same 18 guys. You get to learn how to cooperate and get along with other teammates and work well with other people, and I completely agree with you. I'm not, I haven't met a college coach uh, or a scout in any sport, really, that hasn't said, I want my kids playing multiple sports. I, I, wanted to, I want athletes that, that know how to compete. I think you bring up a great point. But um, the other thing, staying in line with the lineage here, so then when you went to Vermont, would that have been with Bill Currier as the head coach as well? It was. It was. It was a really good experience. Bill's a great guy. Um, Unbelievable hitting coach. Taught me a lot about hitting, um, you know, at a young age. I mean, here I am, you know, uh, getting out of college, getting right up to Wentworth, being a a Division III coach and, and, uh, you know, not really knowing what recruiting was and going locally to a high school and watching a game. And I get a shot of being a, a, a Division One coach and, you know, love the recruiting aspect, love going out and meeting people. But Bill was a very good hitting mind guy and really taught the swing and, you know, back in the early 90s, mid-90s. And we had some good teams and, and we didn't have any scholarships. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think people realize that, you know, Vermont was a Division One program. But back in the 90s, you know, outside of St. John's, Seton Hall, New York Tech, and Maine, I don't know of any other Division Ones that had scholarship back in the early and mid-90s. I mean, the Yukons, the BCs, the Quinnipiacs, and certainly the Manhattans, they were all just, you know, operating just like a Division Three team. So, you know, I worked for Bill and, and uh, you know, had a great time with him and then was able to, uh, you know, at a young age, I, I was 28 years old when I got the Manhattan job and I was the youngest Division One coach in the country and got a, a shot from Bob Burns, the AD there. Did, didn't have a home field, had to play in Van Cortland Park and, you know, had to carry the L screen across Broadway every day and roll up the fence if you wanted to set it up that day to have an outfield fence, that kind of stuff. And just taught me about toughness and taught me about not – you know, what it really did is, you know, you focused on what you had and what you didn't have. You know, we knew what we were dealing with. We knew what we could recruit there. And um, and really just had a good run there. We got some really good tough city kids, some tough kids from that area. Um, you know, I think back of all the Malloy kids we had, all the Island kids that we had, and uh-huh. just really put together some some quality ball programs until you know I got up to Maine. Yeah, Archbishop Malloy had a phenomenal. I mean, you go back that way, you go you go to Severian Brothers Academy. Yep. Um, I mean, you talk about a lot of those schools, and they still do it to this day. I mean, you have the private schools in the New York City area, you have the public schools in the New York City area. We could probably each name a half a dozen that still to this day draw great kids from the area and develop great teams. Uh, and unfortunately, we mentioned Bill Currier. He was a, a victim of I, I experienced once as a coach, which was the Vermont's off the baseball program. Yep. Yeah, and that was great. Yeah, I was going to say, that's great. You know, I was actually at uh, Maine, and we were in the same conference at that time, and 
So it really hurt, um, you know, our conference and hurt New England baseball. And, you know, I, I always fear for that, you know, where, where teams are, are losing, you know, money or, or, or trying to, you know, make ends meet. They try to drop a sport like that, uh, especially – it was really shocking in Vermont um, mm-hmm. because Vermont had a great tradition of baseball. I mean, there were some mm-hmm. really good teams. You know, a lot of people really respected that program, and they're still real informant up there today. But, you know, I hope mm-hmm. that someday they revisit it and try to open it back up. I do as well, and I think if athletic departments get smart, and I guess this is a conversation for another day, but if they get smart and commit to it, you can find ways to make it at least, at least self-sufficient, if not create the ability to make money. I'll give me a quick example. Indiana went and built this phenomenal facility, and they're making money off baseball. They're making good money off baseball, and nobody really thinks about Indiana and baseball in the same sentence until they built that, and then Tracy was there, and they won, and then you know, when you think of Indiana, generally you think of basketball, but I think if the, the athletic departments commit to it, they can find a way well you're right paul and and yeah. not only do you, the winning bring in finances and tickets and and you know that kind of stuff but let me give you a quick snapshot of you know even getting to a regional or super regional level in baseball in 2018 and we can talk a little bit about that as we go on but we had a really run great run here at stetson ended up with an rpi four in the country hosted a regional for the first time ever stetson's history history in fact Ironically, it's the first Florida team that's ever hosted a regional outside of Florida, Florida State, or Miami. I don't think people really knew that. You know, with all the great programs down here, no one's hosted. So we did that. We ended up, um, you know, packing the place. Um, you know, it was great viewing. We did a lot of demographics and a lot of studies. We brought $5.3 million of commerce, in the, you know, wow. hotels, food, restaurants, rent-a-cars, to the city of Deland in that five days. And then when we got to the Super Regional, ironically, we launched our new logo about three weeks earlier. We Our, our school did a marketing study. If we would have paid for the advertising rights, it would have been about $10.5 million in advertising just alone. Now, once that hit, for the next six months, our applications went up over 3,000%. Wow. We had our hits on our social media go up into the thousands of percent that grew we had campus visits that grew into thousands. So, like, you know, the money isn't always just in a dollar bill. It's on the exposure that you can bring to your university. And, you know, I've always said this about colleges and universities. Every university should be known for five things, okay? And so mm-hmm. think about it. If you can put baseball on a map of a university or any sport for that matter, you know, you, you really should do that. I mean, you know, it might be a great business school or people know Notre Dame, obviously, a football and the golden helmet. You know, and so like they know a lot about sports in some of these places, but you know, we we you know we, right now if you say Coastal Carolina, it's it's a great baseball program. You know, that's one of the five things they know. So um, so I think that people have to re- revisit that as they look forward. I'm glad you brought that up because people th- people have to realize this day and age with baseball that it doesn't have to be investing investing in football will have a ripple effect on the economy of the area and the admissions and the enrollment of the school. Uh, Absolutely. I heard the athletic director at Alabama says something like the single greatest decision he made was to hire Nick Saban because and then he went down and attributed to stuff you had already mentioned as far as the commerce and kids applying yeah. to the school and things like that. Yeah. But people also have to realize that it can take place in other sports as well if you're willing to develop it, commit to it, and in your case, hire the right person. Uh, and then I guess lastly, the person I want to bring up was you took over Manhattan at a time where they hadn't won. You made it a winner, and then you took the job at Maine. And for baseball coaches that are listening and getting into coaching teams from the youth level all the way up through college and pro ball, the name John Winkin 
is always going to resonate. And I'm, you know, I'm sure you can probably ask this a million times. If you're not familiar with John Lincoln, in a nutshell, he's basically a coach who's credited with redesigning the way we practice indoors. Yeah. And yeah. I know his name, his name's on everything up there. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about Coach Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, Coach Wink was, you know, someone that I knew when I was at Vermont. So he was towards the end of his career until he retired, um, you know, when I was assistant coach. And obviously just a, 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 just a wealth of knowledge. And I still remember one of the best stories ever in college baseball is we were supposed to go to University of Maine and play in 1997. Um, it was an April day, April weekend. And back then you played doubleheader Saturday, doubleheader Sunday. Two sevens each day. And then you got on the bus and went home. Played four games every weekend when that old conference was together, the American East, which had Delaware and Drexel and Towson right. and Northeastern. It was just some really good baseball programs. So we're about ready to get on the bus, and a snowstorm's coming in. Northeaster hits Maine and dumps a foot and a half of snow up there. Vermont gets it. So, like, they couldn't come there. So we ended up – John Lincoln's idea was to call up a guy by the name of – who you might know, John Wilde who was basically Mr. Cape Cod over in Wareham, has since passed away. And we went over, we took both teams on the road, and we go to Wareham. And John Wilde said to us, hey, we got snow, but it should be gone by the morning. So we all drove down there. We get down to the field to play one day. It was a Sunday. We're going to play. We get to the field, and the whole infield is full of snow. I mean, it's got a foot. The outfield melted, but it was the, the school had a shadow over the field, and right. it wouldn't melt it. So Mike Coots, who was the assistant for John Winkin, and myself took all the pitchers that weren't starting, and we shoveled that field from 8 a.m. till about 3. Wow. And we get done, and we just were dying. We get done, and Wink meets at the plate with Bill and goes, hey, let's do three. We're going to play three seven-inning games. <laughs> and so we oh played God. three, which was called the Wink Special. Everybody knew in the Northeast that if you met up with Wink and you got rained out, you were playing three seven. Which he now the NCAA has banned that, <laughs> so you, right, can't, right. you can't play it. But so John, John, Coach Wink was 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 great. I, I got the main job, and the first thing I did when they offered me a job, I said yes, and I called up Coach Wink, and he was still alive. He was actually working over at Husson College at the time as a baseball coach. Eighty-six year old, he couldn't give it up, and he was a Division three coach. And I almost like a um, like a guy taking. Uh, a father's daughter in a hand of marriage. I, I called him and said, "Hey, I just want to let you know I was offered it. And I want to kind of run it by you first. And uh, you know, even though I accepted it, and he was like, "Thanks for calling." And we met every Thursday when I got that job for the first two years over at Huston and had coffee. And he would help me tell stories about Maine and the alums and who I should get to know and how it's, you know, what it's like to coach up here. And I, I never forget in his voice and the people that knew Wink and played for Wink. He had this high-pitched voice, and he said to me one day, he's like, Stevie, he goes, the weather is the ultimate equalizer. He's like, be careful scheduling teams you should beat when it's really cold and windy. <laughs> In Maine, they could beat you. And um, so we, we had some great stories and meant great mentoring. In fact, so much that after my second year, um, the university president at Maine uh, approved us to hire Wink back, and we were going to make him – uh, what was going to be called uh, John Wink and Dr. John Wink and ABA, Administrator of Baseball Affairs. And we were all teed up. We had his office, going to put him right back into his head coaching chair and desk and office. I was going to take the assistant office and just let him kind of just soak it up. And uh, and he said yes. And, and unfortunately, a month later, he ended up having the stroke that ultimately 
got him and and uh and he passed on but um he you know he has a lot of great stories and, and a lot of great mentoring that he did and a lot of teaching that he's known for and those that are listening john wick has written books articles and just a fountain of knowledge and which brings me to my next point coach we can get to this in a little bit here in the sunshine state but how for coaches that are in the northeast and depending as you know who knows when we're going to get outside. It really depends upon the weather. What are some bullet points and some ideas you can give to coaches from the youth leagues up through high school and college about designing an indoor baseball practice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to speak in 2013 at the ABCA convention in Chicago, and the name of my speech was Drills That Don't Freeze, uh, <laughs> Drills You Can Do Indoors Anywhere. So I was kind of following in Wig's footsteps at that point at the main, as the main coach. You know, the biggest thing is you got to really utilize your facilities and, and be creative. Um, Wing taught me that. You know, you, you know, we're all stuck. We have to share facilities. You know, you might have only 45 minutes. There's a lot of things you can get accomplished in a classroom. You can get a lot of tracking done. You can get a lot of, you know, footwork drills done. Anything that you can do, even when you're stuck in a, a hallway of a, of a school. Um, but you just got to also really keep things quick and, and, and as burst as much as possible. I've always been a firm believer about intention spans of, of players is very short, uh, like mine, I guess I should say. So mm-hmm. instead of doing a first and third drill for an hour, try to do everything for 10 to 15 minutes, but do it more frequently. And when you're indoors, you, you got to keep things moving. Um, you know, the boredom factor could set in a lot. But, um, but you know, obviously you're going to do a lot of your hitting in the cages. You're going to do a lot of things that revolve around that. And so you got to find ways to come up with cage games and some comp- competitions inside there. And and really, um, I've always felt like our main teams were very good hitting teams. Um, and, and, I, and I firmly believe because we hit inside so much. And then we come down to Clemson or Florida, our pitchers might not be in shape or we not, you know, we might some, make some errors because we're not used to playing on dirt because you're on turf. But we always hit the ball really well. And I think it was because you're coming outside after you hit inside so much. It's darker and white walls and all that. But, you know, there's a tremendous amount of – you know, I think of drills like double plays. You can do many double plays all day long and just work on footwork transitions. And we used to do those inside a 60-foot a batting cage, you know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, became pretty good with our double play feeds. And, uh, you know, just, just uh, you know, your base running stuff you can do, um, all your leads, your jumps, your dirt ball reads, these are things that are done uh, on basketball courts if you can get those things done. You mentioned the, the inside work and everything, and obviously you've done – at the Northeast and down in Florida where it's a hotbed for baseball talent. Have you noticed any glaring differences in the talent level from the Northeast to Florida, whereas the Northeast you might be competing with hockey and baseball in Florida, obviously you have multiple sports that you compete with? Yeah. Well, that's a great question, Corey. And and, and, uh, in Florida there's just a lot of kids that play. Okay, so like, you know, the high school season starts here next week. They start practice next week. And then they have tryouts, their first games are February 1st, you know, and they play probably, you know, 35 to 40 high school games, then they jump into travel ball. So, yes, there's more opportunities down here, and there's obviously a pretty good population size in the state of Florida. Um, but when you say talent level, you know, there's there's kids in Maine and, and, and you know, Northeast and, you know, anywhere up there, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, that throw the ball, hit the ball just like the kids in Florida do. It's just that they tend to be a little bit more raw, I think because they don't have as many opportunities to play at a younger age, and we really like those guys. We were I'm, we're really heavily recruiting uh, up in up in the Northeast right now because we think that we can get some guys down here 
and their ceiling is a little bit higher, meaning they got some more development to go. Um, you know, we got a kid that's on our team as a freshman, redshirt freshman, because he hurt his knee. Kid named Brandon Hilton out of out of New Jersey, who you know he's a six foot seven left-handed hitting banger. You know, he's a twenty-something round pick, didn't sign. And I think that if this kid was in Florida, because there's so much more exposure, he would have been a top five round pick out of high school. Um, so I think there's a lot of talent all over the place. Again, I get back to that whole sports thing of playing different sports. I think that in the Northeast, you might have kids playing a little bit more different sports. I find in Florida, the kids do start to play baseball, and that's it. I mean, it's 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 a lot of kids that are 9, 10, 11 years old. And that's all they've ever played um, because down here, it's either football, it's baseball, or it's soccer. You know, you don't see a lot of lacrosse. You know, obviously, there's no hockey down here. Um, basketball is that other sport that, you know, might, you know, get there in the wintertime. But a lot of kids, again, are playing baseball year-round down here. You know, so on the recruiting side, I, I think there's talent everywhere. Um I think the biggest thing I've learned about Florida, and I made a couple mistakes getting a job. When, when we practiced in the Northeast, you you know you got outside, and, and, and that's the other thing about uh, the indoor practices. I would take those guys, whether it was Manhattan or Maine, we would go outside if it was bearable. So, so what I mean by that is, if the parking lot was plowed and it was 18 to 20 degrees with no wind, we were going outside throwing sweatshirts on and doing 45 minutes of fly ball priority or relays and cuts in a parking lot. Whatever we could do, we would go outside. And then once you finally got your field cleared, you would go outside whenever possible to get live reads because that's the one thing that you're missing on. So what do you do when you're in that situation? Number one, you're super amped to be outside, so you're going a a mile a minute. And the other thing is you're going very fast because you want to try to stay warm. (laughs) So you're going fast. So I get down to Florida. And here's Coach Trimper designing his first practice. All right, guys, first day, we're going to do relays and cuts, and we're going to do sliding, and then we're going to do first and thirds, then we're going to take BP. And, then, and the kids were new to me, and I was new to them, and, you know, they're like, Coach, shorts or pants today? And, and I looked at them like they got, you know, like I had a hole in my head. I'm like, shorts? Who the heck wears shorts in practice? <laughs> you know, and then I got these guys. And then after about a week or two, the captain came to me. He's like, Coach, we love the intensity, but it's hot down here. And, and he was right. Like, you, you don't, you know, I used to make fun of the, you know, the, some of the southern schools we go down and play. And, you know, we go to BP and they're in shorts and they're kind of going in 50%. And I was like, look at these guys. They don't take this seriously. <laughs> and I come to realize, you know, like I'll give you an example. You know, there's a heat wave going on. I mean, I, I was just up in Connecticut, Logan Egan, sun speaking. I walk outside and it's 70 degrees on Saturday morning. You know, down here, it was 87 degrees down here today at our individuals. And, you know, that's pretty you know, not typical for this time of year. But as a coach, I made the mistake of not understanding the weather and saying we got to kind of slow this down or not do as much because, you know, if you try to do that from January 13th today, you you know, you're going to burn these kids out, you know, physically and mentally by the time we hit March, let alone June, you know. Well, I got my start uh, in broadcasting in Maine uh, in Sanford in the NACBL. I'm not sure. Did you work with an Aaron Isaac? So Izzy was my my first assistant at Maine. He was the only guy that was held over. He was my graduate assistant, and then I promoted him to our pitching coach. So he worked for me for four, I think it was five years he was with me. Okay, yeah. So he was the manager when I was there. And what I realized, kind of talking about the players being from Northeast and all over, the NECBL is kind of like the, the little brother of the Cape Cod League, so to speak. And I just noticed the passion from the kids in the Northeast on every roster in that league to – 
not, I don't want to say they played with a chip on their shoulder, but I feel like they had more of an edge um, to kind of prove themselves a little bit, as you mentioned, because they didn't have as much exposure as some of the kids coming from programs in the South uh, to kind yeah. of showcase in the summer. So definitely yeah. uh, agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true. They have a little edge. But, you know, the same thing could be said for the kid down here that I've learned, you know, that's not the, you know, highly ranked PG kid or something, you know, that Florida takes, you know, there's a, there's a kid in our backyard in Florida that, you know, maybe the three big schools in Florida don't take a chance on, and that kid wants to prove something. So, you know, I just go look for the, you know, the kids that we think are tough. And, and, and guys, I, I think as I get older, the recruiting process, I, I look for talent. That's true. We all need the horses to pull the cart. We, we know that's, that's, that's nice. You need those guys. But, you know, I really start to find four things that have been my, my pillars. And this is probably over the last five to seven years. And, you know, it's, it's, it helped me at Maine when we were having success, and it certainly helped, you know, in steps in our success that we've had recently. Is, you know, everybody can say good people, but, but you really got to go to define what a good person is. What's a good recruit? What's a good attitude? You know, what's that kid going to be like when no one's watching? You know, what's that kid going to be like when, when failure happens, which it all does to us? Once you get those guys in your program, the next part is the most important. That part is, is building a relationship with them. And I'll give you an example. In 2017, I took this team over in January when Pete Dunn retired. I didn't know anybody's name. I didn't even know my assistant coaches when I walked in here. And we had to play four weeks later and try to tee it up. And so, you know, that was there was no relationships there. That summer, the kids that we asked back, the kids that wanted to come back, I made a point to put recruiting on a hold, and I went to everybody's summer league games. I went to Northwoods League. I went to the West Coast League. I obviously – went to the Cape and the NECBL, and I showed up unannounced because I knew the guys were going to be there and just said, hey, let's go get lunch, let's get to know each other. And when those guys came back, they had a sense of, of a relationship, and I work hard on that all the time in recruiting. You know, you're calling guys, asking about themselves, trying to figure out what you can learn about them because when you have that relationship, the next thing happens. The kids start to trust you, and they start to trust your process and what you're saying and what you need them to do. And they're going to trust when you correct them. Once that's there, the fourth thing happens is they become really, really loyal to you in the program. Mm -hmm. And that's when you can sit back and you can turn the team over to the players. Our goal as coaches is to eventually take this team, work on that culture, work on the leadership, which is constantly changing from a lot of moving parts. And eventually we want to turn this team over to that to the players. As soon as we can do that, the better off we are as coaches, and we can coach, and they can, you know, run the game and basically manage it themselves. And the players learn how to police the program themselves. Yep, exactly. So you mentioned Pete Dunn. You took over kind of late without a lot of time to prepare, and you had taken over you know, a program that has had some success in the past. So can you kind of just talk about, other than what you've already mentioned, the transition of going from Maine to Stetson and getting into the 2018 season? Yeah, um, it, it was really kind of a weird situation. I mean, Pete decided to retire. Pete and I had a very strong relationship from all the years of Maine playing them. I mean, you got to remember Maine at that time had a two-week spring break. You build in the weekends on both ends, and it turned into be about 20 days. And we would just, you know, pack up every T-shirt we had, and we would travel to Florida and play Florida State and Florida and Stetson and anybody we could play. And uh, so over my course of time in Maine, I built a great relationship with Pete. So, you know, his, his hip gave out, his knee gave out, and he just got decided he wanted to retire. So, um, 
you know, Pete reached out and said, hey, man, you know, we've always played your teams at Maine. You you played us tough. You know, the kids play fundamentally sound. You might be a good fit. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, a northern guy getting a, Florida, a shot at a Florida job doesn't happen that often. And, you know, so I went through the process, met the president, met the AD. You know, just, it just so happens that our president and her husband are from Maine, so we had a lot in common. Uh, Jeff Altier, our athletic director, he played baseball at Stetson. He was an assistant coach here for eight years. He's been the AD for 23. He's on the baseball committees. We just struck up a, a really good interest in the same things and the same values and principles and vision we had. And, and I told him, I said, look, Stetson has a great uh, a footprint in, in the national scene. You know, Coach Dunn had some tremendous people come through here, like the Corey Klubers and the Jake DeGroms and, and many before that. I said, but, you know, with the stadium and, and not too far away from maybe putting a little paint and putty on it, as I told them, a little renovation, you know, we could have the footprint of being one of the best mid-major college baseball programs in the country, or at least in the top five. And, and uh, you know, my athletic director gave me every resource when they hired me, uh, you know, to do that. You know, we renovated our car, our, did a state-of-the-art, you know, indoor locker room and players lounge, and, you know, we're about ready to launch our, our you know, stadium project, you know, starting in 2021, we're going to be investing about, you know, six and a half to $7 million into the stadium. So uh, we're really excited about that. But, you know, we were able to build off of Pete's success and run with that and infuse a little bit of, uh, of energy into it and, um, and, you know, add some good additions. And I have a great staff with Dave Thurneau, who was named national pitching coach of the year in 2019 after that 18 run. Uh, Joe Mercadante is my recruiting coordinator who had a great string at UCF as an assistant recruiting guy and certainly at Miami also and actually took over the Orlando Scorpions travel ball for a bunch of years before I hired him out of that. So he gave me a good footprint of the recruiting in the, in the state of Florida. So, you know, I really feel strongly that, you know, the, the, you know then the 18 team happened where we just went on a tear and it, it kind of led to our recruiting today, you know, where – you know, the roster we have today is kind of built because of that 18 success. People started to recognize Stetson was a good place to play, and we really got some talented kids here now. You didn't mention how your family reacted to moving from Maine to Florida. <laughs> well, it's kind of a funny personal story, but I don't think people realize this. But when I moved to Maine, I have twin daughters. And they they play, they play, I, know, I know they play ice hockey, right? They do, yeah. So, so, so what happened? You, pro- you probably don't have to worry about them on a date. They could probably handle themselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, this guy's getting out of line, so I'm going to check him into the board. That's right. They, they can uh-huh. handle themselves. That's right. So, But, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I never played ice hockey in my life. We moved to Maine when they're five years old, and they fell in love with hockey, and they played it all the way up through youth. And we figured by the time they got to Bantam level in high school, they you know, that's it, because there's no girls hockey up in Bangalore, Maine. It's only boys. Mm-hmm. So then they still wanted to play. They ended up playing Bantams. They started checking. They started doing better and better. They made the high school team as freshmen. They played varsity as sophomores. And then that that next year, they um, they left. and They went to the Taft School in Connecticut to play women's ice, girls' ice hockey. So oh. they just moved to Taft. We downsized, sold our house. We were going to build a little cabin not too far from school, kind of get out of the big house thing. And literally a month later, Stetson hires me. So, so you know, my wife and I moved to Florida, you know, and I, I, she's a New England girl, so she had to get used to the heat a little bit. But the land is such a great little town. If anybody's ever been here, they'll, they'll know that the downtown area has been ranked five years in a row. It's the number one main street in the United States. It's got 
a great feel. The campus is vibrant and, and meshed into that downtown area. And our stadium is on one side of Main Street and the other side of Stetson University. So it's a really cool place to, to not only go to school, but to live and, and kind of visit. I've spent time in Daytona Beach and uh, actually had a chance to fill in and do a weekend series for Stetson. And I was really impressed with the facilities and heard that you formed the dugout club and helped raise money towards renovations uh, mm-hmm. at the facility, which I thought was already pretty darn nice. Um, <laughs> how does that help for you, obviously, from the recruiting standpoint? And, you know, obviously you mentioned the, the downtown area. Yeah, well, well, really, after the regionals, we, we really had a lot of people step up and help us with the guts, I should say, of our place or, you know, with our locker room and training rooms and all that. And I don't think a lot of people realize this, but um, Stetson and the city of Deland, Deland are in a partnership with Melching Stadium, our field. The city owns that place, and we're their leasee, their tenants. We're obviously their only tenant. And so that lease is up in 2020. This is our last year there. Um, and it was 20-year lease. It was built back in 2000. Coach Dunn and Jeff Altier and the city officials um, you know, built the place from ground up. So when that lease ran out, you know, we have to renew our lease. And so the only way to do that was to sit down with the city and decide, okay, are we out and we're going to go someplace else and build our own stadium on campus, or are we going to continue with this partnership? And absolutely not. The city would not let us even leave. Um, you know, and, and we came to an agreement how we're going to, we're both going to engage in the, the process of this renovation. And so, you know, I, I'm going to go on a limb here, and, I, and I've always said there's, there's a there's a lot of people out there that might might not, might confuse being optimistic versus embellishment. I've always said that, and uh, but I've always erred on the side that you know I want to make sure that we're telling our positives. We we really feel like when this thing is done in 2021 and completed fully in 22, we're going to have one of the nicest you know top 20 facilities in the country, and certainly one of the top two uh, in Florida. You know, with Florida building. University of Florida building their brand new, I think it's like a $75 million stadium. It's going to be obviously very nice. But, you know, outside of that, our place is going to be, uh, you know, right up there. Um, it's, you know, what you're putting into it is going to really be an eye-catching thing. And, yes, it does help recruiting. It does show off our place. It does help the city of Deland and the downtown area. But, you know, we don't win games because we have a shiny new car. <laughs> we don't win the games because we have a great locker room. They're all rewards. Okay, they're not they're not measures of success, they're awards. I get back to our success is because of our foundation. And, you know, we want to show off that foundation and say these are the rewards that we've reaped because of it. And, and I think it's ironic to this day. Our field is beautiful. It was named the, the Collegiate Baseball Field of the Year last year. Our grass is immaculate. Our grounds crew is the best in the country. They're, they're awesome. But you know what? John Miola, our third baseman, he goes out there every day and he blows off all the sand or any dirt off his position. Same thing with George Arenas, the shortstop. Our pitchers take care of that mound. When a visiting team comes in, and if they're throwing in their spikes and warm-up in the outfield line, one of our players will per- politely walk over and be like, hey, guys, not to be a jerk about this, we take care of our field and we have a lot of pride. Do you guys move- mind moving off the line so we don't have to fix that grass every single day? You know, like they take pride in our place. And so with a new stadium coming – they're going to have that same footprint, that same culture that we're going to appreciate everything that we have. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, it helps with recruiting. How much of a battle is it for you to get recruits? Obviously, you mentioned Florida, but Florida State, uh, Bethune-Cookman isn't too far, and obviously uh, Tampa has a pretty solid program as well. Um, just 
how are you able to kind of differentiate yourself aside from the uh, the facility? Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing about Stetson is it's, it's a it's a very strong academic school. So so for the people that are in the Northeast area, it's easy for me to compare. But you know, when you say Holy Cross, Lehigh, Lafayette, those Patriot level schools academically, you know, that's that's basically Stetson's footprint. So you know, we're going to get that 3.5 GPA kid. You know, that the kid that wants to go to a school that's a little smaller, but yet there's only eight, nine kids in a class. It's all full-time professors. You're not coming here to take online courses. You know, you're not going to show up to your economics class and have to click into 100 people in the classroom. So I think that that's one of our selling points is that we're looking for those type of student athletes that, you know, want to enjoy this. Um, and then in the state of Florida, you know, there's a lot of good programs. I mean, UCF. South Florida, obviously Miami, Miami, Florida State, you know, Florida, Gulf Coast, Jacksonville, North Florida. Like, we all compete. FAU, I mean, John McCormick's done a heck of a job. Uh, FIU. So there's a lot of good programs to compete against. But in the same sense, we don't worry about, you know, the things we can't control. Like, we try to show off our place, what we bring. You know, we got a high-energy staff. We want to care about our players. We've had tremendous success in having kids come here undrafted, in the last three to four years and leaving drafted, um, you know, and I think that that's one of the things that we, we look for is come to Stetson, you know, develop as a baseball player, enjoy what we have to enjoy. I mean, New Smyrna Beach and Daytona Beach is 20, 25 minutes away. Um, you know, you can enjoy those parts of it, but in the same sense, you're going to get a great education if pro baseball doesn't go your way and you're going to end up with an, with an unbelievable degree. There's a, a lot of clips people can find about you online talking about the X's and O's side of baseball and everything from base running to hit and run to developing leadership. And like you mentioned before about practicing inside, I saw one of the things I wanted to pick your brain about on the podcast is uh, one of your speeches I had seen was when to execute a hit and run. And yeah. one of the things I always talk about was you know, I had the opportunity, fortunately, to coach in four different collegiate summer leagues in my, in my, in my collegiate career. And I remember you're getting kids who are hitting with metal all year long. You get them into a, a strong, competitive wood bat league. And whether you're on one side of the coin, if you're a hit-and-run guy versus a guy who may not be a hit-and-run guy, one of the things I saw was you take a kid and say, we're going to have to move runners because we're not going to be able to put up numbers like we can with metal. We're going to have to manufacture and produce runs. And I just found that kids have a tendency to almost massage the ball the opposite way when we're trying yeah. to go hit and run and, and put it on the ground as opposed to driving the ball. So I wonder if you could speak to a little bit about your philosophy about the hit and run and, and as far as how you teach it. Yeah, I mean, first off, on an offensive mindset, I've always said if you want to be a good hitting team, you better be an aggressive hitting team. You better you better swing the bat. Um, you know, and, and my other thing that goes with that is, you know, everybody wants to cut down strikeouts in baseball. Well, don't get the two strikes. You know, get it, get after it a little bit and put the ball in play, especially with one strike. But with a hit and run, it's something that we utilize a lot. We actually utilize it probably more than the bunt game, and it still keeps that aggressive mindset because the hit and run is designed to get a guy over to third base, and we can go into that for a while. But it's still a glorified sacrifice. So if, if I if I hit the ball on the ground out of the middle, even if I hit it into the defense. I'm still moving the runner to second base, which is what the, the, the sack punt would have done anyway. So all we're trying to do is we try to tell our guys, first and foremost, you have to have the idea that the hit and run is just an aggressive sacrifice. We're trying to get you a hit. We're trying to play for a bigger inning in that situation. So our hitter's mentality is we want to have the ball attacked, and we want them to try to get on top of that baseball and put the ball on the ground, 
out of the middle. Whatever they can do, we don't want them to take an inside pitch and try to fly it the other way. We don't want to try to hit into the, the cover or away from the coverages. We say split the plate in half. Middle in, pull it on the ground. Middle away, hit it on the ground the other way. You know, if you're a left-hander, the shortstop. If you're a right-hander, to the second base side. So that at least gets the guy to second base. Now, if we are able to execute it and put it on the ground and it gets a hole, now we got the base runner going first and third. And that base runner's um, – well, first of all, back to the hitter. <laughs> Let me go, not go too fast. We want that guy to protect the runner. So, basically, we're trying to have them swing at everything that's not a dirt ball. So, we want them to kind of get some kind of distraction. Even if it's a pitch they can't handle, let's keep the catcher back. Let's try to get the stolen base. And all we ended up doing was swinging at a ball outside the zone in that situation. That runner is trying to take what we call a one-way lead. They're not going to get the best jump. They're going to get a good jump. Okay, we don't want them to get picked off. The one-way lead tells our runner, you got to make sure you're going to go one way until it's delivered to the plate. So make sure you got a little bit of a hesitance in your jump before you go and, and get picked off here on this one because we're trying to put the ball on the ground. Um, that hitter, that runner, I should say, his responsibility is to find that ball. So it's three steps. We say in, track it out, and over. So you'll hear all the time I'll say in, out, over. In to find the ball, out, find it going to the outfield, and then over to the coach, especially when you lose the baseball. Too many times I see a hit and run executed. The kid doesn't find the ball. There's a fly ball to center field. you got a savvy, smart middle infielders, and they turn a double play and the guy's sliding into second base, and the ball's caught in center, and we got a double play, uh, you know, thrown behind the runner because he didn't find the baseball or find the coach, okay, in that situation. So just trying to really practice first to third, which, by the way, I find that we spend the most time in our base running going first to third because I think it's not practiced enough. Right, I, I feel agree. like if you, if you learn how to go first to third, especially with one out, and probably most risky with one out, and then secondly with no outs, and, and obviously, you know, pretty safe on two outs, that's a play that really makes a big inning. So that happens in the hit and run. Um, you know, and the last part is the coach, because there's really three elements to the hit and run. The hitter, which we discussed, the runner, which the responsibilities are, and the coach. You know, so I always start off that speech with, uh, are you a coach that would sacrifice bunt with two outs? And, of course, everybody in the crowd goes, no. Well, then why would you hit and run with two outs? Because all you're doing is getting the runner to third base, which is still going to take another hit to score them. <laughs> you know, they're not scoring on a sack fly. They're not scoring on a ground ball in the middle. They're not, you know, the only way you're scoring them on is an error, pass ball, or hit. So it really makes no sense to hit and run with two outs. you got to really think about no outs, or especially with one out, of really trying to play for that bigger inning at that point and think of that as a coach. So two, when I speak to two points, number one, you mentioned replacing the sacrifice with the hit and run. So essentially what you're telling me is you would be more likely to call that with no outs versus calling a hit and run with one out, or would that not change your percentage? It, it doesn't change the percentage for me. You know, we, we get a guy on first base, no outs, and, you know, I, I, if, I'm a, if I'm in an aggressive mood or I know we got to score runs that day because we're not going to have a lot of shots at hitting this guy in the mound, Mm-hmm. You know, so let's say we got a Friday night guy, and the guy's been carving everybody up for two or three weeks in a row, and we get third inning leadoff single or walk, let's say. I'm more off to hit and run because mm-hmm. I, I now, if this ground ball happens in this next swing or two that we put it on, I now can get this guy to third, and I have more of a chance to score this guy 
other than hit. You know, and so, like, you'll see me do it for all different reasons. I mean, there's times when I might stack fun, and then if the stack fun doesn't work and we get the one out, then we hit and run and still right. try to get them over there. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. Other thing I wanted to mention, the second point is it just takes me back to something that I've had the opportunity to speak at some some events as well, and I thought to myself, I spoke one time about base running, and it really takes me back to Tamular Sorta, to me, was the first, as a, as a really young guy, take players, teach over and over that going to first to third, and of course, Soshi played with him and took it to the Angels, and I just think, as you mentioned, whether it's a, a soft hit ball, whether it's a way to put pressure on the outside, I, don't, I definitely don't think it's practiced enough, either in base running packages in practice, whether it's during BP, during drill work, whatever you need, it's definitely not practiced enough going from first to third. No, it's not. And and you know what? Let's let's put it this way. How many people out there practice your center and left fielder aggressively charging the ball and making a good, accurate throw? Because where we see it on and why we practice it, how many center fielders just go, okay, I'm just going to sit back on the single up the middle and go to one D? That's right. where we want to put pressure on those guys to not only – and if we see that, that's when we really take advantage of that. So we're thinking with one out, um, you'll see me every time – I coach third base, every, which is every play. You will see me show the runner at first, the number one sign, which is telling him one out, and I am pointing at third base. And so I do it all, you know, thousand innings a year we play. I will always do that because I'm trying to remind those guys, get here with one out. Whatever you do, get here and push the pedal to the metal. Great point. We also want to talk about leadership. You mentioned that, how important it is for yeah. – baseball program at Stetson to not only develop baseball players, but to develop well-rounded, responsible student-athletes. And part of that is leadership. You, this past month, you've released a book entitled Walk Up Winning, a Game Plan for Leading Your Team and Organization to Success. Can you speak a little bit about your thoughts on leadership, how you teach it in the book as well? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think just quickly, you know, how the heck does a college baseball coach write a book on leadership that has nothing to do about baseball? It's the question I've been asked the most over the last month, but, you know, just a quick synopsis how this came about. You know, when I was at Maine, in early in my career, you know, Manhattan and my first couple of years at Maine, I thought the secret sauce to coaching was go out, get great horses, go out, get those big-time recruits, and just teach them how to hit, teach them how to pitch, teach them how to field, work them hard, work them hard. And I started to realize, you know, you know there's more to this. You know, 2008, 2009, leadership wasn't a hot topic yet. And I was like, you know what? My best teams at Manhattan, they had just tough kids. My best teams at Maine, that 2006 Maine team that was, you know, really, really good, went to a regional, they were just tough kids. So I said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start reading every sports book I could on mental toughness and success and leadership. And so I read them all. And so now all of a sudden, 2008 hits. And for 2009, right around that time, and what happens to the financial market, but it goes crazily terrible. And my AD calls me in the office and says, hey, I got some bad news. You're going to have to go out, and you're going to have to raise probably about $200,000 a year to keep this thing going. And I was wow. like, you got to be kidding me. Like, you know, and so, you know, that's not something you put in the front page of the paper. That's something that you're like, all right, I'm either going to get out of this situation or I'm just going to get busy doing it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to be a team – I'm not going to become a coach that doesn't know how to coach anymore because we go down and wins because all of a sudden we're playing 45 games and we're not getting the budget right. We're not traveling right. So the only way you do that is going out and meeting your successful donors and alums and business owners. So I, I engaged in this process to try to ask them to, to donate. But in the same sense, I'm like, my God, these people have built 
multi-billion dollar companies. They've been successful. They've failed. They've gone bankrupt. They started startups again. So I started interviewing them all. And lo and behold, I built a few relationships to where one of them, back in 2010, said, hey, I need you to come and speak to my bank at our annual meetings on leadership and success because we've had, you know, you've had some great ideas. So I was like, this is great. You know, I'm the first time in my life I'm not speaking about bunting or base running or indoor practice. <laughs> so, so I did. And, you know, and I think I did it for a $50 gift card to Amazon or something. Who the heck knows? And then I, you know, recommended one led to another. One led to another. And, you know, over course from 2010 to about 2015, I, I, I did probably 150 of these to big corporations, you know, with 1,000 people in the room to, you know, a bunch of roofers in a garage, you know, sharing a keg of beer, you know, and, right. and using, a, using a white sheet hung from the rafters to do my PowerPoint. And um, almost every time people were like, hey, where's your book? It's great stuff. And, you know, my comment was like, I can't even write an email, let alone a book that's quality. So, <laughs> so you know, I just, I just kind of put it on hold. And then by a stroke of fortune, I, I ran into an author out there that's been very successful named John Gordon. And John has written some really good motivational business leadership books, most famously for the Energy Bus. Um, he's wrote, you know, The Carpenter, The Power of a Positive Team. I mean, he's got 10 bestsellers. I mean, just stratospherically successful. And, uh, I, you know, I, he saw my stuff. He's like, man, you got some good stuff, and you have an audience. He's like, just write your notes down. And so I started doing it in 2016 when I was, you know, my last year at, at Maine, and then the Stetson job came, and I just put it all on hold. You know, so I had some things down. So another stroke of luck happened last spring. We made a basketball change here on our coaching staff and hired a guy by the name of Donnie Jones. Donnie was at UCF and had a pretty good career. He was a assistant at Dayton. But when he was let go at UCF, he became a motivational speaker and worked with John. So they became close friends. Wow. So here I am walking across to get lunch for last March. And here's, you know, Donnie's has a relationship with John, and I reconnect with John because of their relationship. And John, you know, was like, hey, man, how, how's your book going? And I was like, you know, actually, I got some stuff. So he ended up hooking me up with his publisher and Wiley uh, and Sons out of New Jersey there. And we ended up, you know, signing a deal, and they helped me through the process all summer. And I think the most proud of the thing I am about the book is uh, I found that I can only write in the morning when the phone's not ringing or the emails aren't coming. So I, uh, I would – you know, seven days a week, I'd set my clock for 4.30. It would definitely take two cups of coffee in a half an hour. Then at 5 a.m., I would open that computer up, and I would start writing. And I can't tell you those four weeks sitting in a hotel in Lake Point were grinds because I would, I would write till 9 a.m., and then I would go to the base. You know, I, we've all been there. and you know, right. You're just going crazy all day till 10 p.m. and lightning delays and all that. So basically the book is, is, is 19 chapters, and each chapter revolves around – uh, a value or a story that I learned from some of these very successful people and how I applied it to my own life, you know, and how you can apply it if you're a coach, if you're a principal, a teacher, if you're a supervisor, if you're a CEO, doesn't matter. You know, these principles are all very similar. And how many books out there talk about the similarities between business and sport and success? And so, you know, it, it kind of really has taken off of, uh, in this last month and really taking some momentum. But, you know, back to it, it's, it's about those values I already talked about. I talked about, you know, the relationship building and how important that is and vital to long-term success. 
Because, Corey, Paul, the biggest thing we're trying to do, whether we own a business or we're running a team, we're trying to build a program. There's a right. difference between programs and teams. Teams are short-term. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a travel ball team, a college baseball team might go out and recruit for one year and have everybody just come in and they're all gone. You know, where a program has some sustainability. You know, it's something that has a great foundation, has alums involved, it has parents involved, it has a sense of pride. Same thing in business. We, businesses don't want to be a team. They want to be a program. They want to be long-term. And mm-hmm. I think that the secret sauce that's tough to develop is people have to understand um, you got to get a set of values that are important to you, whether that means positive attitude, the image of your company or your team. It might mean what true energy really means as opposed to fake energy. What is your definition of toughness? You know, all those things that you might call as values, traits, or characteristics. And when you feel good about those, it's now your job as a leader to develop those in your leadership. Once you have that step, you know, complete or or at least sound, now you have a chance of having a strong culture. What happens, I see people saying, yeah, we're going to be tough and we're going to be excellent and we're going to have integrity and we're going to have leadership and our culture is going to be strong. They mesh it into one thing, but it's really, you know, one step to the next, to the next, to the next as it goes forward. And I think we all know that it's ever-changing because assistant coaches leave, players leave, uh, employees leave and move on, which is all great measuring, you know, success stories. But you got to un- understand that you're constantly paying attention to your team's leadership and culture. And I, I engage in this whole process because I, I full, truly believe it's the single biggest factor to Stetson's baseball success. And, and I want to get selfish. My job is I want to give success to Stetson University and Stetson baseball. I want to make right. sure that they have a great experience here. They create these unbelievable memories. Donors and alums are proud to be a Stetson Hatter. And so that's why I engage in this process. And the other reason I engage in this is I was tired, honestly, of, of self-admitting 25 years of coaching. And, and, and honestly, I think I got the captains right maybe five times. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, what did I do? I, I, you know, I would pick the captains this year because I'm the head coach. And I picked the, the, the kid who was at his uniform dirty. And he stayed the longest and worked the hardest. Oh, well, I didn't realize that kid's going back in the dorms and not going to class and maybe right. indulging in adult beverage too much when he was not mm-hmm. supposed to. Right. Well, then I let the kids pick it, and it turns into a popularity contest, and we don't get the right guy. So I, I really took a step back, guys, and said, what am I doing as a head coach to train these guys to, to give right. them leadership capabilities? So not only the book came out, this year I did something I never mm-hmm. did before. I had our team apply to be a captain this year on the first day of our classes in the fall. And I was interested to see who filled out the job application. We had 20 guys that applied. And then I put them through a 14-week, two-hour course each Tuesday night. And each Tuesday night, I brought in a speaker. I had a general. I had an NBA coach. I had a Hall of Fame. Bill Holloway he flew down here and spoke to our team. I had... Uh, one of the best um, entrepreneurs I've ever met in my life, who's a billionaire, come in and talk to our team. And I had them talk about leadership. And then at the end, we had them reapply. And we had six individuals that wanted to apply again. And, and that's how we came up with our captain. So I have a foundation, I believe, in place for our team, our program this year, that we have some training to these guys. So when 
you know, the, the, the tough times come when the, the losing weekends happen. It's not the end of the world. We know how to dig out of that muck. So wow. that's kind of what the book's about. That's a phenomenal idea. It's the first time I've ever heard of somebody doing it that way because we've all picked our you know, captains in different forms. And yeah. uh, I think that's pretty interesting. You really find out who wants it. And you really find out who is trying to put themselves in the best position to be a captain and a, a leader of the program. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the book, Coach, where can we get the book? Yeah. Well, right now it's, it's offered on all your online bookstores. So you can go to Amazon.com, uh, BooksAmillion.com. I mean, simply, uh, you know, Barnes & Noble also. Um, you can just Google, you know, walk off winning and, and it, or go to any one of those book sites and it'll come up. It's actually going to be uh, – it, it was pre-released uh, last week for the National Convention and uh, and then also for the Mohegan Sun. And, and I know the Amazon people that pre-ordered it, you know, over the last month or two that was up there for pre-sales, it did ship out today. So uh, – we're pretty uh, we're pretty happy. And actually, I just got notification that it's just listed as uh, we hit number five today on Amazon's new release list. So we're we're it's getting some momentum, and I think it's uh, it's something I'm interested to get out there. And I'm I, I did this all by accident. I didn't do this for becoming a, an author. I can tell you that that was my goal. And, uh, it all happened. I, I just wanted to kind of jot my thoughts down. And, and quite honestly, the name of the book, guys, was changed from the publisher. I, I originally wanted to call it Walk the Walk. Are you a doer or a sayer or a talker? Right. And I, and, I, and I basically wrote it because I was talking, like many, I, I talked a big game. I was saying, oh, one day I'm going to write a book. You know, I'm going to tell everybody my stories one day. And so I finally just said, you know, I'll stop talking about all this stuff and just do it. But, you know, we ended up changing the book to have a, a baseball hint, uh, you know, so it has walk-off winning, but it could be applied to, to any business, any organization, any school, or, or any program as we go forward. And so – that's the easiest way to get it. One last question I want to ask you about leadership. If you're a coach listening to the podcast who unfortunately may not have the resources of a college, if you're yeah. a guy who's coaching a little league team or coaching a high school team, what are some of the cliff notes you can give that coach yeah. when looking to develop, you know, even small doses of leadership in kids at a younger level? Well, I think first and foremost, little league all the way through the major leagues, you got to understand everybody's watching. And so what I mean by that is the image that you create as a coach is it sticks forever. I mean, we have 30 seconds to make a good impression. We all have heard that before. So, so when you're out there and you take a step back and how you're running your practices and what kind of energy do you bring and what kind of positive attitude do you bring to that kid, whether it's a 9-year-old or a 12-year-old or a travel ball team as 14-year-olds, that is, is, is integral in the success because they're going to mimic you. So if I show up at practice tomorrow and my AD just ripped me apart because we're over budget, and I lost two recruits, and I have four other things that go bad in my day. If I show up with that attitude, I have 35 individuals that are going to be like, what's wrong with him? And we're going to get 50%. <laughs> That's all we're going to get that day. So I need to, to know my image and my attitude is very, has to be checked all the time, especially for our young coaches out there. You know, you're, these kids you we're working with are so uh, impressionable on what we're trying to do. So we have to make sure that we bring that. To, to every single day. And I think the other part, if you're going to take on the role of playing or coaching baseball, if we're talking to a lot of coaches out there right now in our podcast, you got to understand you're going to fail. You're going to fail as a coach. You're going to mess it up. The kids are going to mess it up. So just paint the picture in your mind and prepare for it. It's going to happen. How are you going to react to it? How are we going to get over it? How are we going to come back from those things? And, and just looking to take a lot of ownership and responsibility in that. It's not the umpire's fault. It's not the weather's fault. Those are things that we, you know, we can't control. So, so just allowing yourself to understand the more that we prepare for those, 
the less pressure we're going to have. It's like taking a test. If you don't study for the test and you said on Thursday night you're going to go out boozing with your college mates, you're going to fail the test. If you stay home and you, you prepare all night, you're going to get an A on your test. So, you know, just having these kids and these coaches prepared that they might fail, or they're going to fail, I should say, I think that's a big part of, of what I try to uh, address as we move forward. And, um, and, and I, can't, I can't speak enough for all of our youth coaches out there and how important it is for them to, to not only coach these kids up and go to these clinics and go to sit on practices. I mean, my God, reach out to your local college coach and ask if you can come to one of their practices. I guarantee no one's going to ever turn them down. They want people to come in and hear what they're saying and ask questions. So, so try to invest in that because you're going to be the ones that are going to keep these kids interested. We need good coaches out there because we do not want to lose our athletes to another sport. I said play another sport, and I'm big on that. However, keep baseball interested, interesting to these guys because they know how to teach it and they know how to be fun and they know how to have some success. Even when you fail, you can have success. <laughs> you can get to the end of the day and put all the things down that you did well. And I think that's a big message I try to send out. Giving us a lot of areas to think about, and you said some remarkable things. And this brings us to the last part of our podcast, which is what we call the bandbox inquisition. <laughs> Nine questions, Corey and I have uh, made to try to get some of your further thoughts and philosophy on some areas. So I'm going to kick it off with uh, number one. As a coach, how do you define success? Uh, I'm simple. <laughs> we, we got into that. Those four things. If I have good right. people, if I have good people, I can build relationships with them, and I have a trusting, loyal relationships with those guys. We're gonna we're gonna have success. There's everybody defines success. It, it, when I meet, they try to use three, four things, and the four things that they always come up with in that word analogy thirty second thing is money, possessions, fame, and wins in sport. So in business, it's money, possessions, and fame. Everybody wants to get a good job, to send their kid to prep school, to be able to pay for their college, and to buy a nice house for their family, and they all want their company to be on Fortune 500 magazine. So that's how they think success is. There's, those are rewards. We already addressed that if I can get that foundation going of really good people, assistant coaches, players, and I do the biggest job of building relationships, they're going to trust and be very loyal to me. So when I'm running an organization – and I'm a supervisor, and on December 24th, when everybody's looking to go home at noon, and I screwed up, and i got to make sure that we got to close this account out and finish the paperwork, that office is not going to be like, are you kidding me? They're going to be like, you know what? If this is going to make us better, let's get it done. Everybody order pizzas. Let's grind this thing out. And everybody comes together. And you know what happens in the long run? That CEO of that company is going to get more. He's going to be, his quarter earnings are going to go up, and their, their profitability is going to go up. He's going to give bonuses to everybody. Those people are going to go out and buy jet skis and new houses and send their kids to prep school. And he's going to do an interview on, on a magazine about why they're a Fortune 500 company. <laughs> and the coach is going to tell everybody why they got the Omaha. So, you know, that's my whole take on success is having those four pillars in place. What is your greatest moment in coaching? My greatest moment in coaching was seeing the kids at Stetson. There's a lot of them, first off. I mean, I, I can tell stories of the stories individual players it goes back and forth to like tommy lawrence and mike trent Soso and matt rosati nick durba some of the guys i had are just great kids but when we won against oklahoma state and that's regional night on a after a rain delay and it's 11 o'clock at night the game's on espn and we win that game and that team celebrates 
um, and goes on that mound and they do that pig pile. There's nothing better than that. And then being able to go to a super regional and, and, and really being about 26 feet away from Omaha, which, which, you know, could have been a backbreaker and a negative thing. It just drove you know, the Stetson baseball program to try to succeed more. Uh, but I, I do think that that regional 2018 run is something I'll never forget. Reeling off 18 wins in a row, um, you know, having an RPI from a mid-major is number four. I mean, that's just that's just something that I'll never forget. What's the best piece of advice you could give to another coach? Uh, keep educating yourself. Just when you think you you know it all, <laughs> you don't. So I'll tell I'll tell another way of doing it. I was told when I got to Maine by a real famous philanthropist up there, a guy by the name of Harold Alphonse, who built Dexter Shoes Company into a billion-dollar company. He sat me down one day and told me, hey, Stevie, you want to be a true Mainer, and I'll tell you how I built Dexter Shoes, keep chopping wood. And I was like, what the heck does that mean? He said to me, he goes, listen, in Maine, these winters are tough. And if you want to buy wood to heat your house in June, it's going to be about 90 bucks a cord. And then if you run out of wood in April, because these winters go into April and May, it's going to be about 600 bucks a cord, and you're going to go bankrupt. So basically keep chopping wood. Just when you think you got enough, keep going. So to our coaches out there, just when you think you know it, go to a convention. Go to a practice. Go pick somebody else's brain. I enjoy going to the national convention after 20-some-odd years. And if I'm speaking, great. If not, I'm sitting there listening to speakers, and I'm trying to pick up one thing. There's one thing that I've always known, and I, and I have a ton of respect for Tim Corbin at Clemson, who is a New Hampshire boy, started his own, you know, started a program at Presbyterian College, got hired by Jack Leggett over at Clemson, and certainly built a, a monster in, in Vanderbilt. You, in the last 10 years, go to an NC, a, a ABCA convention, and guess who's in the front row of every speaker? Tim Corbin. <laughs> he's, so here's the number one coach in the country, you know, making a great contract, and, things, and he's got the dream job of everybody out there. And the guy sits in the front row of every speaker of every convention he goes to. So, so that's the one advice I can give to somebody. What was your worst moment coaching? Oh man, my worst moment. I honestly, I, I <laughs> this is embarrassing. Okay, <laughs> but I'm going to be. Oh, this honest. is a good one. Then this is a good yeah, one. Yeah. So, so I, I got a lot of tough losses and all that. You want to know the dumbest thing I've ever done? And, and the Manhattan guys out there will uh, will, will attest to this. My second year coaching, we lost the first game of doubleheader to Siena, and I was in Van Cortland Park, and, every, and I told you about that place. It was crazy. Our guys had to bring everything down to the field, and we had a golf cart that we used to roll up our outfield fence in and put it in the back of the golf cart, and I'd drive it down the hill. I'd zip across Broadway. I'd jump into the park, you know, go through a couple of chains and things and drive it in the field. We set this thing up. So after that first loss, I'm this young 28-year-old guy, and I'm going to tear into these guys for not playing good, and you didn't hustle on the ball, and you, you blew the game. And, and I took my, my left fist, and I side-slammed the side of the golf court, and I shattered my hands. And so my worst thing I did in baseball is I let my emotions get the best of me, and I'll never do it again. And ended up breaking my hand, and I coached the second game with a broken hand, wouldn't tell anybody, and I had to go to the hospital because I had an open compound fracture. And I said, and the guys on that team to this day, we talk about that. I was like, that's the dumbest, worst day of my baseball career because I acted like an idiot. That's what I did. So that's my answer to that one. What excites you the most about coaching? Uh, just being around the guys. I, that's an easy one. I love 
being around our guys. I love going to the clubhouse. Today was our first day back, and we did our individuals today. Um, and the guy's like, what's got into you, Coach? And I missed them. I, the, the last four weeks here, I've been lonely. <laughs> so I, I just they were away for break. And, and this time of year, you know, you go to conventions and you speak and you see your, you know, your other coaching friends. And I just get so amped up to go. And that that one-on-one relationship, that you know, taking a guy that's that's not doing so well and you know making some errors or not hitting the ball well, and being able to have a breakthrough with them. Even if I'm not teaching them how to change their swing physically, but I got to find a way to get in their mind and be like, hey man. That's it. You got it. And then giving them a shot to get out there and seeing a little bit of their success and just trying to have them grow as individuals. I think that's my my greatest uh, joy in coaching. What is the most difficult or challenging part about being a coach? Um, I think the the most difficult part is all the hats you wear. I think a lot of people see a, a major league game and they see a guy sitting in a dugout chewing seeds and just touching his nose and his chin and trying to call pitches or something. You know, you know, if you want to be a successful college coach, and this is from Manhattan to Wentworth to Maine to Stetson to Florida to Clemson, you got to wear a lot of different hats. you got to be a fundraiser. you got to be a promoter. You have to be a recruiter. And I think that those are the things that you have to be willing to engage in and operate at a high level. But, um, you know, I, I think that the other part for the northern side of things, so I didn't realize it until I got to Florida, I brainwashed myself that it's not a big deal. But the travel that you do in the north, because you have to travel every weekend to beat the weather, if you want to play 56 games, if you want to start up in February, it just wears you down and it wears the kids down. And here I am now down sitting here in Florida, and I'm like, the, by 2017, we, we got done with our first weekend series. I went home. And I watched the Daytona 500 on TV at 4:30. I'm sitting here on a Sunday. I'm like, I've never had a Sunday in my house <laughs> in, in February or March or April. I mean, they've been on the road, so it's been a little. You know, I think that's been the part that's the toughest is all the travel and wearing the different hats. What's one good piece of advice you could give to players about life? Well, I think the game of baseball is going to deal you a lot of setbacks and a lot of ups and downs. A lot of highs, a lot of lows. And the piece of advice, if you're going to be a baseball player, you're going to play in sports, it's exactly what's going to happen the rest of your life. You're going to lose jobs. You're going to win jobs. You're going to lose accounts. You're going to win accounts. You have to learn how to let that stuff roll off you like water on a duck. You know, I, I use a term all the time from one of my favorite, favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, and Morgan Freeman says, you know, it's time to get busy living or get busy dying. And, and, I, and I talk about that all the time about, you know, the piece of advice is, man, get living and, you know, you're going to fail. We're going to screw it up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to blow the game this year sometime. I'm going to send the runner with one out and get him thrown out by 30 feet and I'm going to be the GOAT. But it gives me such a great opportunity with the right mindset to build off my failures and to move forward and learn from mistakes and, and own those mistakes so I can get busy learning. So that's one piece of advice I would try to share with everybody. If you could have a conversation with any one person in the history of civilization, whom would it be and why? Wow. That is a (laughs) great question. Holy cow. Um, You want to know something? The first thought would be is to come and and talk to a a Mickey Mantle or 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 a Roger Maris or just one of the greatest hitters, you know, that could have been out there, Stan Musial. That's my first thought. But, you know, I think more than anything, um, I really want to think of someone that impacted and had a way of making a huge impact and changing the life of an individual or a pers- uh, another person or an organization. 
or a country even to that matter. And so I think what comes to mind is someone like Abraham Lincoln, who went through such a, a pivotal time in, in, in America, you know, the United States' life with slavery and the Civil War and things that were going on and, and just the negativity that was dealt to that guy and the doubters and the naysayers. And, and he just kind of persevered through so many things to lead our nation to greatness. And so um, I, I would probably pick Abraham Lincoln if I was fortunate enough to get 20 minutes with that guy and, and just because of the fact that having someone that led someone or an entire country to greatness, that would probably be my, my ultimate dream. Last question. Finally, at the end of your career, what would you have liked your players to have said about you? Uh, boy, you know, um, I, I hope I, I can leave an impression on these guys that help prepare them for life. Um, the wins are great. The stories are great. The memories that you create and the friendships are awesome. But I, I hope that they go out. And once they leave playing for our programs, I hope they can become, you know, really, really good husbands. I hope they can become really, really good dads. And I hope they can be leaders in whatever field they they, uh, they choose to go into. And I, and I hope that I can give them something that helps them get better at those things. And, and hopefully they can say that I was, was able to help them in that way. And, and I think that's the ultimate measure of, of, of a compliment to me is that, we, you know, you can aid somebody in doing that. Again, Coach, you've given us so much to think about, and we really appreciate the time you've given us. And again, I have no reason to blow smoke, but I think you and I have known each other over 20 years, yep, and exactly. I, I, have a, I have a great admiration for you in all the aspects of your leadership, the way you're on a program, and how you treat kids. And if I had a son, no doubt in my mind, uh, you'd be one of the guys I would, I would push him to play for. And well, uh, I just wanted to say thanks again for everything, and I, I wish that's the best of luck this season. Yeah, well, I, Paul, I appreciate that, and that, that's the ultimate compliment. And so, uh, you know, thanks for having me on the podcast. I, I hope you can follow Stetson. I hope the people listening to the podcast can follow it. They can certainly follow follow us on our webpage. Or they can follow me on Twitter. I'm all over that. I like to put out little messages and, and give people updates as we go through, too. So so I uh, appreciate, you know, both Corey and, and you, Paul, having me on. Okay, and don't forget about the book. You can p- pick it up at any major book retailer. So thanks again, Coach. Best of luck this year. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate right, it. Thank you. Corey, that was great having Coach Trent Brown. There's a guy who uh, began his career in the Northeast, made his way to the South, and has had a tremendous amount of success and I'm sure we'll continue to do so in the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. And uh you could just kinda hear in the voice the passion he has for coaching and I thought it was an interesting career path where you mentioned he started up in the East Coast and Northeast where it's always cold and now he's in Florida, a hotbed for baseball, but the things he's been able to do for that program in a short amount of time at Sestin has been impressive. And again, want to mention to everybody out there, if you want us to interview anybody specific, if you have any questions about any upcoming guests, feel free to follow us on Twitter. The message is at Bandbox Podcast. For Corey Nido, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you again on our next episode.